Welcome everybody for week one of Faith with Benefits. Now this series is part of our annual summer book study. For the last several years we've taken time during the summer to teach through an entire book of the Bible. And this summer we're going to do that with the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians is an awesome book. It's a fairly short book in the New Testament. It has just six chapters, so we're going to cover a chapter a week over the next six weeks, through all of July and one week into August. And I'm really looking forward not only to teaching through this book, but I'm also excited that we are offering a small group study through the book of Galatians that we're making available to all of our home groups so that during the week you can dig a little deeper into this book and this study. And then what I'm really excited about is that with this series, with this study, we are doing something that we've never, ever done before at Cedar Creek Church. Now, I know that's, you know, not unusual. Doing things we've never done before is kind of our theme at Cedar Creek Church. But here's what we're doing for this Galatians study. We are going to be offering each weekday during the next six weeks a digital video devotion guide through the book of Galatians. We've been working for the last month. Fellow Cedar Creekers, people just like you, uh, have made these wonderful little videos where they're reading a small passage, just giving you sort of a devotional thought or a point to ponder. And we're going to make that available through Facebook online every weekday morning. It starts tomorrow morning. So if you're on Facebook, just make sure that you follow the Cedar Creek Church page. Now, for those of you who are anti-Facebook, and I get that, Facebook is a dangerous platform, and if you're just not willing to do that, make sure that you are on the city. Now, if you don't know what the city is, the city is our church's in-house online social media platform. So you don't have to deal with all the crazy people in the world out there. You just have to deal with the crazy people that go to church here. But if you're on the city, you'll get that every weekday morning. If you're not yet on the city, just go to our website, click the big button that says join the city. It's pretty easy. There's also an app for your phone. If you need a little tech support or a little hand-holding in the digital world, just stop by the Welcome Center at your campus this morning. They'll get you connected, get you plugged in. I don't want you to miss out on these daily devotions. Cool little videos done by some amazing people. It's going to be epic. It's going to be great. I don't want you to miss it. If you travel like we all do during the summer, make sure you're catching the messages online, either live or through the archive. And if you're going to be out of group, make sure your home group leader maybe gives you a copy of the study that week because we're going to go verse by verse, word by word, through this amazing book called Galatians. So I hope you'll be a part of all of the parts of it. Now, to really study a book of the Bible, there's a couple of key things you need to understand about that book in order to really mine the reach the rich truths and principles that are in there. Like, you need to understand, like, who wrote the book? Who's the author of it? I mean, we know the Bible is God's Word, but we know God chose to write that Word by inspiring human writers. And when I say that, I don't mean God used them like zombie word processors. 
Like he put them in a trance and just had them write whatever he wanted to write. He used their personality. He used their experiences. And so the more that you know about the writer of a book of the Bible, the better insight you can get into that book. You also need to know who's the audience. Who was the book written to? Because, you know, the Bible was written over the course of about 1,500 years. It's written in different languages. It's written to different cultures at different periods of history. So, you know, there are books in the Old Testament that were written specifically to the nation of Israel. There are books written to individuals, books written to churches. So you really need to know the audience to understand what's in the book. And then the third thing you need to know is the purpose of the book. Why was it written? Because some books of the Bible are written just to keep a historical record, just to keep a record of what was going on and what happened. Some books are written, as I said, as letters. Some books are written as just a collection of songs and poems. Some books are written as just a collection of wise saying or proverbs. Some are beautiful love letters like the Song of Solomon. You need to understand why the book was written, when it was written, who it was written to. And so all of that helps you discern the truth from God's Word. So Understanding the book of Galatians means we need to know those three things about them. Now, there's no space on your outline, no fill-ins for this, but you can write in the margin. So let's start with the author. Who wrote the book of Galatians? If you know, shout it out. Paul, the Apostle Paul, a name familiar to many of you, but maybe if you're kind of new to church in the Bible, you're like, I don't know who this guy Paul is. Paul is an apostle of Jesus. But unlike all the other apostles, Paul was not part of the original 12. He was not one of the 12 men who hung out with Jesus for three and a half years during Jesus' ministry on earth. In fact, Paul kind of played for the other team. He was part of the Jewish religious elite, a Pharisee. And in fact, it was after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Paul made it his life's mission to destroy this Jesus thing. This, this, this cult, in his opinion, got spreading and corrupting pure Judaism. He's like, he's going to wipe it out. And that's what he did until he had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Jesus on a trip to the city of Damascus. And in that experience, that encounter with Jesus, he not only became a Christ follower, but Jesus commissioned him as an apostle, as a messenger direct from Jesus. And because God has a great sense of humor, guess what mission he gave Paul, this Jewish guy, to take the gospel message to all the non-Jews, to take it to the Gentile community. And so that's what Paul spent the rest of his life doing going from town to town, outside of Judea, away from the Jewish community, and giving the gospel, preaching the gospel message. People would get saved. Paul would help a church get going in that city, a little house church or a big church. He would get it going, and then he would move on and start all over again. And so occasionally, to keep up with these churches he planted, Paul would either visit them personally, come back after a period of time, or he would write letters to them to encourage them, to admonish them, or just to keep up with them. And so that's what the book of Galatians is. It's a letter that Paul writes to a group of churches in a region known as Galatia, which, by the way, is now modern-day Turkey. And so what's interesting about Paul's letter to the Galatians is that unlike most of his letters to churches, he doesn't write to an individual church. Like the books of Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they're written to the Corinthians, Romans, to the church at Rome. Paul writes to a whole group of churches in this geographic 
region. So why does he write the letter? What is the purpose of this letter? Paul writes this letter to the Galatians because he's pretty ticked off at them. He writes this letter to call them on the carpet, to get up in their grill. And he wastes no time in his letter getting right on their case. Most of the letters that Paul writes to churches in the New Testament start with sort of a template. There's a formula, a letter-writing formula that Paul used over and over again. Starts with a greeting, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, grace and peace to you, to the faithful believers gathered in. And then he would take the first chapter of most of his letters to kind of write a prayer for them. This whole paragraph prayer, he would say, you know, I, I thank God every time I think of you. Your faithfulness, your generosity. He's, he's buttering them up. He's encouraging them. He's speaking positively about them. But when it comes to the Galatians, Paul don't have any good thing to say. He starts right out and he says, basically, Paul, an apostle of Jesus to the churches in Galatia, what is wrong with you people? Actually, he kind of says, I am astonished. You know, it's sort of like uh, George Costanza's father in Seinfeld, it's like, I got a lot of problems with you people. And he gets right into it. So why is Paul so upset? Why is he on their case? Because they have allowed a perversion of the gospel message on which they were founded. See, sometime after Paul left Galatia and moved on, a group of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came to Galatia and started infiltrating these churches and started telling them that, yes, you needed faith in Jesus, but to be saved, you need to be a little bit Jewish too. This group of people are known by scholars as the Judaizers which is a great name because that's what they tried to do, to make Jews out of these Gentiles so that they could then become Christians. To be a Christian, you needed to be a little bit Jewish. You needed to follow the dietary laws. If you were a male, you needed to be circumcised, and you needed to celebrate all the Jewish feasts. You need to get a little Jewish culture in you, and that will help save you along with Jesus. And Paul is having none of it. The entire book of Galatians can be summed up in this simple sentence. Paul says to them, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, Paul goes on to say that to add anything to the gospel not only minimizes what Jesus did on the cross, but it causes you to lose the benefits of living in the gospel truth, the good news of what Jesus has done. So in this study, we're going to look each week at a different benefit of having faith alone in Christ alone. Make sense? See where we're going? All right, let's jump in. This week, we're going to look at chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn to Galatians. It's about halfway through the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app with you, it's okay. You can follow along on your printed program, but I would encourage you in the weeks ahead to bring a Bible or a phone or a tablet, something with a Bible app, because you really want to engage with God's Word. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles available for you at all of our campuses. So pick one up on your way out today. Now, as I said, Paul starts his letter with a self-introduction or a reintroduction to this church that he helped started. Paul, an apostle of Jesus. But then he does something that he doesn't always do. Paul defends himself as an apostle. 
You know, because he wasn't part of the 12. I'm sure the Judaizers were saying like, well, you know, Paul wasn't really with Jesus like the others. And, you know, he doesn't really know all the truth. He did a good job. And so Paul says, no, sir, I am a full apostle called not by men, sent not by the headquarters in Jerusalem, but sent directly from Jesus Christ with this message. And then here's the message. Paul sums up the gospel in this powerful verse 4, top of your outline. Paul says, here it is. Here's the gospel message. Jesus gave his life for our sins. Just as God our Father planned in order to what? What does that say? To rescue us from this evil world in which we live. The gospel is a message of rescue. For those of us, all of us, who are incapable of rescuing ourselves. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is just look at some of the things that the gospel rescues us from. Three things the gospel rescues us from. When we live our life with faith alone, in Christ alone, three things happen. One, we are rescued from the confusion of religion. The gospel rescues us from the confusion of religion. Few things are more confusing than religion, right? Religion can be very confusing. And I I don't just mean like which religion is right and which religion is wrong. What I'm saying is that when my salvation is earned by religious works, If I have to earn it, that always creates more questions than answers. If I got to earn it, then I got to wonder how much is enough. How hard do I have to work? How many good deeds do I have to do? If I have to earn my salvation by following rules, then it always makes me wonder which are the really important rules to follow and which are the ones that are less important. Anytime you see religion, there's this division. These are the major rules. These are the minor rules. And it also, religion causes me to think, well, what happens when I break a rule? What happens if I break a rule unintentionally? Right? Like the Galatians didn't grow up Jewish. What if they accidentally had lobster? and didn't know it was not kosher and it was banned on the list? Or what if I break a rule on purpose, right? What if I'm driving by Shane's rib shack and I'm just overcome by temptation and I pull in there and I eat a big pile of pork because that's on the ban? What happens? That's the problem with religion. It creates confusion. Interestingly, these Judaizers, when they came to the Galatians, They said, look, you don't need to follow all the Jewish rules, just the important ones. You know, you need the diet, you need circumcision if you're a male, and you need to celebrate the festival. Can you imagine the Galatians going, wait a minute, if I need to be Jewish to be saved by Jesus, shouldn't I be like whole Jewish? You know, shouldn't I follow them all? Why do I only have to follow some? That's the problem that creates confusion. Paul addresses this issue in verse 7. Paul says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion. And they are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Circle that word pervert. See, that's what religion does. Religion perverts the truth. Religion takes what God has done and makes it about what I can do. Think about this. Whenever you feel like you have to work a little for your salvation, whenever you feel like you need Jesus and a little bit of something from you, 
You're trying to earn it. You're minimizing what Jesus did on the cross. You're minimizing that passion, that beating, that suffering, that death. You're looking at all of that that Jesus did for us and said, Thanks, Jesus, but it's not quite enough for me. I need to help you out a little bit. i got to add a little bit to it. That's what religion does. Religion is almost always an incubator for pride. Let me say that again. Religion is almost always an incubator for pride. Because the focus is on what I can accomplish. Paul addresses this issue with another church, the church at Ephesus. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what? What's that phrase? Not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Can I ask you a personal question? Right now in your life, where are you trying to earn it? Where are you feeling like you got to do a little more? To be a little better? To work a little harder in order to be saved? Where's pride showing up in your relationship with Jesus? I think for some of us, I would say most of us here are probably not feeling like we have to earn our salvation. We know we can't earn that. It's through faith in Christ alone. But I bet some of us are trying to earn God's favor. Somewhere deep inside, we feel like if we could just be a little better, then God would bless me a little more. If we could just work a little harder, if our behavior was improved, we could get a little more blessing from God. And Paul would say to us, as he said to the Galatians, these good works in your life are not the route to salvation. They are the result of salvation. Do you understand the difference? That our good deeds, our good work, loving, caring for people, serving, all of that, it's not the route to salvation in God's favor. It's the result of having salvation and God's favor. Let me see if I can explain it to you another way. We don't love others so that God will then love us. The Bible says we love others because God already loves us. It is the overflow of a grateful heart that has been transformed by the gospel. And anything added to that just creates confusion and pride and is hollow, broken, empty religion. Faith alone and Christ alone is the heart of the gospel. The gospel rescues us from the confusion of religion, but it also rescues us from the trap of people-pleasing. The gospel rescues us from the trap of people-pleasing. See, not only does the gospel free us to not have to earn God's love, it also frees us from feeling like we have to try to keep everybody else happy. This is so interesting. When the Judaizers came into the churches in Galatia, they did not come in telling them, Paul's a bad man. Paul gave you a bad message. Don't listen to him. They said, no, Paul is a wonderful man. Paul is a kind man, and he didn't want to upset you. I mean, who wants to come into a church and tell all the males to be saved 
you need to be circumcised, right? That message is not going over well. So the Judaizers are saying, Paul didn't want to tell you the hard stuff. He just wanted to please you. He watered down the gospel to make it easier for you to accept Christ. And Paul's having none of this. Paul is pushing back on this idea that he's a people pleaser. Look at verse 10. Paul says, obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Now, circle the word obviously. Why would Paul say, obviously, that's not what I was doing? Obviously, I was not trying to please people. Well, if you read verses 8 and 9, you see Paul goes out of his way to be offensive. Paul's like, if you believe another gospel, you're condemned to hell. And whoever taught you that gospel is condemned to hell. And if an angel tells you a different gospel, you're condemned to hell. And if I come back and give you a different gospel, I'm condemned to hell. Now who's trying to be a people pleaser? Paul's saying, that ain't me. That's not what I was doing. And not only is Paul defending that he didn't preach the gospel in a way that was people-pleasing, but he's also trying to teach us that people-pleasing prevents us from being a servant of Christ. Did you catch the end of verse 10? Paul said, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Paul's saying people-pleasing and serving Jesus are mutually exclusive. You can't do both, not at the same time. The Old Testament book of Proverbs, look at what it says. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. And by the way, that word fearing, it doesn't mean like I'm scared of, oh, you're going to get me. It actually means reverence. That's why the Bible tells us to fear God. That doesn't mean we quake in our boots. It means reverence Him, place Him in high esteem. And so Solomon said in Proverbs, if you do that with people, if you put them above, if you make them your focus, it is a dangerous trap. And take it from me, a recovering people pleaser, that trying to please people is exhausting. It is exhausting trying to keep everybody happy. And the reason it's exhausting is because you're trying to please people who will never be satisfied ever, no matter what. I've spent a big chunk of my life, my adult life, trying to keep people happy, trying to do the things that they want me to do, to make the changes they think I ought to make, and I'll kill myself to make them, and by the time I make those changes and do what they want, they've come dissatisfied and decide they want something else. It is exhausting to live that way, but it is also a barrier. It is a barrier to being who God's called you to be, and doing what God has called you to do. So let me just ask you straight up. Where's that happening right now for you? Where are you trying to keep people happy? Where is your pursuit about what other people think and say about you? Maybe for some of you it's a peer pressure situation, right? You know there's some things you need to do or stop doing, but you know if you do that, people are going to push back. You know, they're going to say, what are you, a holy roller? You know, who do you think you are? Are you just trying to be a goody two-shoes or whatever? And you're just, you're like, I know I need to do this, but what will they think or say? Or, or maybe for you, maybe for most of us, we've grown beyond peer pressure. Hopefully, 
But for us, the people-pleasing shows up in our codependency, right? We're spending all our time and energy trying to fix somebody else's chaos, trying to clean up after somebody's mess, trying to keep everybody happy. Not just happy, trying to keep their life together. And so we spend all our time and energy cleaning up after somebody else. We have no time and energy to manage our own life, let alone do the things that God has created and called us to do. That's what happens. And the gospel says you don't have to keep everybody happy. The gospel says God's opinion, what God sees in you and what you do, is all that matters. Listen, the Bible or the gospel rescues us from the confusion of religion. It rescues us from the trap of people pleasing. And then finally, number three, it rescues us from the future of our past. The gospel rescues us from the future of our past. And I know you're writing that down and going, what did he say? That's a weird phrase. And I understand that, but it's the best way I could think of to put it. And here's what I mean. What I mean is without the gospel, your future is controlled by your past. Apart from the gospel, the things that you've done or not done in your life limit what you can do or can't do moving forward. And what the gospel does is it takes your past and turns them into just experiences you've had that God can use rather than the determining factor of what your future could be. That's what the gospel does. Now, don't misunderstand me. The gospel does not free us from the consequences of our bad choices. The gospel does not teach you can do anything you want and there will be no repercussions. No, God has built a world and placed us in a world where there are always consequences for bad choices. There are always painful consequences when you go outside of God's loving and protective boundaries. When you get outside the guardrails, there's going to be damage. But one of those consequences will not be that you are permanently sentenced to a second-class Christian life. There's no sin you can imagine, no brokenness, no pain you've caused yourself and others that will limit God fulfilling His ultimate purpose in your life. The gospel says God can and does do it. And nobody understood that more than Paul, right? What is Paul's past? Destroying the church, persecuting the church, dragging Christians out of worship to have them beaten, imprisoned, and executed. That's his past. In fact, he, he talks about it in verse 13. He says to the Galatians, you've heard of my previous way of life. That's a kind way to put it. In Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. And not only is Paul saying, listen, you know my past that past ain't keeping me from being used by God. In fact, I would say Paul's past made him perfect for this assignment by God. Who better to bring a message of faith in Christ alone than somebody who had spent his life pursuing the emptiness of religious rules? Who better to stand in front of these churches and say, don't pursue the trap of religious works. I've spent my whole life doing it. I've been way better than you will ever be at it. And it's empty and hollow. Don't go down that road. Do you see that? Do you see how Paul's past 
gave weight to his message? Well, guess what else it does? Paul's past pointed people to God. Look at verses 23 and 24. Paul is quoting the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is what they're saying about me. The one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And look at the result. And they praise God because of me. Paul's not saying that in pride. He's not saying because I'm all that in a bag of chips, they think I'm doing a great job. He said they're praising God because they know how broken and messed up I am. And if God can use a weak, broken, messed up man like me, then it's got to be from God, not from man. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, I've seen this over and over and over in our church. That our greatest, most effective ministry will come out of our biggest failures, our deepest pains, and our hardest struggles. Why? Because when you put the focus on your success, it puts the spotlight on you. And that helps nobody. Broken, hurting people look at you and you brag about how you got it all together and you put up the facade of having the perfect marriage, the perfect family. That doesn't help anybody. That just discourages them. But when you share out of your weakness, it puts the spotlight on God's grace. And people say, man, if God could do that in his or her life, what could God do with mine? That's why Paul says, if I boast in anything in life, it will be boasting in my weaknesses. Because God's power is seen best in my broken, messed up life. What's in your past that God could use? What painful struggle or situation have you been through that you're trying to sweep under the rug, you're hoping nobody finds out, and God's saying, no, the gospel means I can take it and redeem it and use it to help others. The world and our enemy Satan says, no, be ashamed. Don't tell anybody. Nobody will like you. Everybody will think you're bad. Just keep it hidden. And God is crying, let the gospel transform it and God to use it to help somebody. Listen, I understand. It is not easy to do. It's the hardest thing to do to take your deepest, most shame-filled, painful moments and say, God, use it to help somebody. I understand that. It is not easy for me to stand up here as your pastor, supposedly your spiritual leader, and share that I'm a broken man, that I'm not a great husband, I'm not a great father. It, it's hard for me to stand up here and share honestly that our kids aren't perfect. It's hard for me to share the brokenness of our family with you, but I do it because I know it gives you hope and it gives God glory, and that is the purpose of all our lives. That is what we're called to do. And that's what God is calling you to do. So as I close this morning, here's what I want to ask you to do. I know maybe your mind's starting to drift to lunch or your plans, but just hang on because I think God wants to do some work in your life right now. So I'm going to ask all of our campuses, those of you watching online, just bow your head, close your eyes, no distractions, no moving around, no shuffling, just let's do some business with God. Would you... Just ask God to show you what you need to be rescued from. 
Ask God to show you the power of the gospel. Not just the story of Jesus shed blood forgiving your sins, but the power of the gospel to rescue you and free you to live the life he's called you to. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe for some of you, you've never received that good news. Maybe you've just been religious all your life and you've been working hard trying to earn it. And I think God maybe brought you here today to say, lay down your efforts and fall apart in the grace of my gospel. Let your faith alone in Christ alone sustain you. Or maybe you're here, you are a believer, you've surrendered that, you know you can't earn your salvation, but you're still trying to earn God's favor and blessing. God brought you here today just to, to surrender it, to say, I'm just going to choose to trust in you, God. I'm going to allow the good news, the power of the gospel, to be a reality in my life. Oh, Jesus, help us trust you and live in the power and the truth of the simple but clear good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.